Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. At this hour, there are at least 155,000 confirmed coronavirus cases in the United States and 2,845 deaths in the U.S. That is up more than five times from the 501 deaths in the U.S. that I brought to you at this time last week. The nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, has warned this could get much worse in the United States. Dr. Fauci standing by the assessment he told me on Sunday morning that there could be at least one million Americans infected and potentially 100 to 200,000, 100 to 200,000 deaths in the United States. A horrible statistic to contemplate, but it's one that President Trump is testing uh, as a sign of how well the Trump administration is managing this crisis. So if we could hold that down, as we're saying to 100,000, it's a horrible number, maybe even less, but to 100,000. So we have between 100 and 200,000. We all together have done a very good job. That, of course, is a dramatic shift from about a month ago when President Trump suggested cases in the U.S. would go down to zero. Right now, new coronavirus hotspots are cropping up across the nation in places such as Michigan and Louisiana, though New York remains the hardest hit so far in the pandemic in the United States. Today, in the shadow of the Statue of Liberty, the U.S. Navy medical ship Comfort arrived in New York to ease the burden on overwhelmed hospitals in New York by treating non-coronavirus patients, of which there are many globally. We should note there are more than 770,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus around the world and at least 36,000 deaths around the world. That number, of course, assumes that the government numbers from places such as China are accurate, which, of course, is a big if, especially as it pertains to the Chinese government. With experts warning that the peak of the virus in the U.S. is at least two weeks away, cities and states across the United States are preparing for the worst, as CNN's Erica Hill now reports from the current U.S. epicenter, New York. Help arriving in New York with the Navy hospital ship Comfort. A thousand beds on board to help ease overcrowding in the city's hospitals so they can focus on those with coronavirus. If you are not preparing for the apex and for the high point, uh, you are missing the entire point of the operation. Uh, It is a fundamental blunder to only prepare for today. That's why, in some ways, we are where we are. We've been behind this virus from day one. As other states look to the epicenter for lessons in what's to come, Rhode Island telling all out-of-state travelers they must self-quarantine for 14 days, going door-to-door in coastal communities, setting up checkpoints, monitoring train travel to spread the word. If we see vehicles in driveways with no plates on them, we are going to knock on the door. Texas and West Virginia mandating self-quarantine for anyone arriving from several states, including New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Louisiana. Hotspots in Chicago and Detroit also seeing their needs spike. Michigan's governor calling on states to work together to gather critical supplies for those on the front lines. I think that the most important thing that we all need to remember is the enemy is COVID-19, and it is not discriminating against party. It is not discriminating against state. It is uh, ravaging our country. 
New York's governor echoing that sentiment and pleading with health care workers to also join in. If you don't have a health care crisis in your community, please come help us in New York now. We need relief. We need relief for nurses who are working uh, 12-hour shifts, one after the other. And we will return the favor. As communities brace for the virus, the nation's top infectious disease specialist is warning. This is no time to lose focus. There are a number of areas in the country that have relatively few cases. Those are the ones that are vulnerable and dangerous. To keep those areas from sparking, more stay-at-home orders are being added across the country. One of the latest in Maryland, on the outskirts of the nation's capital. Officials vowing to crack down on anyone violating the orders. We've got a pastor here outside of Baton Rouge driving around picking up people to go to church. You're going to have to start enforcing it because they're going to spread it to other people. And we're not going to get on top of this until... uh, Everybody listens to the uh, to the order. And as we're watching this play out across the country, we are hearing over and over again, it is time to heed those stay at home orders. Plenty of people out in Central Park today, Jake. I can tell you that much. Also, just behind me, the reason we're in Central Park today, there is a 68 bed field hospital that's going to open tomorrow. What's different about this one here in New York is that this is specifically for coronavirus patients, as we've seen from some of the other field hospitals and even the uh, the comfort ship. Those are for overflow for non-coronavirus patients. Again, this one behind me in the park, specifically for those with the virus. An unbelievable sight. Erica Hill, thank you so much. Uh, Joining me now is CNN Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Uh, And Sanjay, Dr. Burks said this morning uh, that this projection of possible deaths in the United States, 100,000 to 200,000 that that she and Dr. Fauci brought to President Trump, um, she said that's a best case scenario. That's if everybody does everything right. That's a staggering bit of information. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, Jake. But, but uh, you know, if you look at some of the initial other modeling numbers, uh, you know, there's, there's all sorts of numbers that are obviously much higher than that. I don't want to, you know, unnecessarily cause people to be alarmed, but, but, but that's absolutely true. I mean, th- that is if we actually are all basically abiding by these stay-at-home recommendations, which, Jake, we're not as a country, certainly not uh, right now. So that's, that's really worrisome. As part of her comments, as you know, Jake, yesterday, she also said that we started late. I mean, she conceded that. I yeah. think we've all known that for some time. But we started late in this country, so that's 100 to 200,000 deaths if, if, uh, if we do everything right, really, from here on forth. There's going to be a lot of time to do after-action a- reports about this um, once we're through this crisis. But just briefly, just to talk about how we got started late, what was the time when greater action could have meant far fewer deaths than, than what we're facing right now? Well, you know, I, th- I think there's a, a couple of uh, points. I think certainly, I think uh, the initial sort of steps to to uh, uh, qu- quarantine, something we hadn't done in this country in 60 years, was important. Uh, those were good initial steps. The issue was, did we do enough uh, after that with the time bought, uh, the few weeks in between? I think during that time, I'm talking sort of, you know, mid-January through mid-February, 
there was still sort of this, uh, you know, is it really going to be a big deal here, even though public health officials sort of knew it was because they, they saw what was already happening in China. So I think at that point was, was important. I think if you look at Germany right now, Jake, um, they have a lot of cases. I think it's over 60,000 people who've been infected, but um, I think fewer than 600 people who've died. Still a lot of people who've died, but a much lower rate than here in the United States. And I think part of the reason is that they tested early, they started acting early, and you, you now have a case example of, of why that made such an impact. Italy's fatality rates closer to 10 or 11%, Jake, because they didn't act early. So again, I, I, I want to be optimistic. I think that you know, it's, it's great that these actions are now being taken, being extended, but you know, we did get a late start and we have some catch up to do here. That's right. The modeling that Dr. Fauci referenced suggests that the U.S. could need more than 200,000 ICU hospital beds, more than 30,000 uh, well, I'm sorry, 200,000 hospital beds, more than 30,000 ICU beds, um, not to mention all the ventilators. Is the U.S. healthcare system going to be able to meet th- those requirements? Well, you know, I mean, you know, the, the hospital system here in the United States is not really built uh, with, with surge capacity. You know, this may surprise people, but in fact, we have fewer hospital beds and ICU beds than we did uh, probably a, a decade or two decades ago. We've actually gone down because hospital systems have wanted to become as efficient as possible. It's just they're very expensive systems to run. What I think I've been, you know, sort of inspired by Jake is, you know, American ingenuity is, is something to behold at times like this. This idea now of splitting ventilators, uh, mainly talked about just as a theoretical concept, the idea of trying to adapt existing other machines like CPAP machines. They can't do exactly what ventilators can do, but they can certainly help sort of bridge patients who are starting to have a little bit of difficulty breathing. So uh, I I think it's an open question still, Jake, in terms of we're going to be able to meet those demands. The manufacturing by by companies like GM, the issue there is that it probably will be a couple, three months before we recognize the impact of that manufacturing. Just takes a while to manufacture new vents. They've got to be regulated. You've got to source these parts from all over the world. Everyone wants these parts. But I think the ingenuity that I've been hearing about from a lot of my colleagues, I know you have as well, is, is pretty inspiring. Mm-hmm. And I think there may be some good solutions that come out of that. The president extended the social distancing uh, guidelines until at least April 30th, a month from today. Uh, and that, of course, could be extended even further. When you look at the projections, um, when do you think we're going to be able to start on a, on a you know, bit-by-bit basis getting back to normal? Do you think kids will be able to go to school in the fall? Um, do you think... Uh, people will be able to go to the beach in the summer. What, what's your best guess as of today's facts? I think when you, when you look at some of these other countries around the world, and again, keeping in mind we did start late a bit here, you're, you're talking about an eight to ten week sort of cycle. Um, I think that that's sort of what it looks like. And so, you know, I mean, the end of April, I think, would be sort of six weeks that we've been doing the stay at home. I would add on maybe, maybe another uh, two to four weeks after that. I think at that point, um, there may be some start to return to to normal activity, perhaps. Uh, It won't mean school this year for kids, but probably in the fall. I think that the real question, Jake, for a lot of people is the confidence that people are going to have at that point, just almost from a mental standpoint, an emotional standpoint, even more so than from a physical standpoint. Are they going to be nervous to touch an elevator button to to come in contact with people or not? We've never gone through something like this, so that's going to be something we have to deal with as well. Something, yeah, I mean, 
there are a lot of mental health professionals that are going to be needed, not just now, but That's right. for the next few years. This is an internationally right. tra- traumatic event, especially uh, for children. Uh, Sanjay Gupta, as always, thank you so much. It's it's great talking to you. you. Got it, Coming up, a medical you war too. zone. That's how one ER doctor is describing the situation at a hospital currently overwhelmed with coronavirus patients in the United States, we should note. We're going to take an exclusive look inside that hospital. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back. The ICU is at capacity. Patient beds line the hallways and the morgue is overflowing. This scene I'm describing is not from China. It's not from Italy. It's not from Spain. It's from the United States. It's from New York City. CNN's Miguel Marquez takes us now for a harrowing look inside one hospital, a place that one doctor describes as a medical war zone. Ah. Every corridor, every corner, every ward. Every inch of Brookdale Hospital Medical Center in Brooklyn now inundated with those suffering from COVID-19. What are you looking at on a daily basis? How difficult is this? Well, this is a war zone. It's a medical war zone. Every day I come in, what I see on a daily basis is pain, despair, suffering, and healthcare disparities. Through Sunday afternoon, Brookdale said it had at least 100 confirmed cases of COVID-19 with nearly 80 awaiting confirmation. More than 20 people have died so far from the disease. On top of its normal emergency flow, coronavirus is pushing the hospital to the max. We are scared too. We're fighting for your lives and we're fighting for our own lives. We're trying to keep our head above water and not drown. Doctors, nurses, even those keeping the floors clean face a rising tide, uncertain how long it will rise, unsure this coronavirus won't sicken them as they struggle to stay a step ahead. What do you need right now? We need prayer. We need support. We need gowns. We need gloves. We need masks. We need more vents. We need more medical space. We need psychosocial support as well. It's not easy coming here when you know that what you're getting ready to face. The deaths here keep coming. While filming, another victim of COVID-19 was moved to the hospital's temporary morgue, a refrigerated semi-trailer parked out back. The hospital's regular morgue filled to capacity. How much room do you have in your morgue? Um, Usually we have around 20 plus um, bodies that we can fit comfortably. And you've gone over that? Gone over that um, and they've, uh, the state has been great and gracious enough to bring us um, apparatus to help keep families and keep the the bodies in in comfortable areas um, because we didn't want bodies piled on top of each other. Brookdale needs more of everything. Today, Edward said the hospital has 370 beds. They'd like to add more, many more. Two weeks ago, this was the pediatric emergency room. Now it's dedicated to victims of COVID-19. Plastic tarp taped to the ceiling, offering some protection and a bit of privacy. The intensive care unit filled nearly to capacity and sealed, so fewer doors and less traffic than usual comes and goes. This window is the only place where family members can watch their loved one inside the unit as they chat with them via cell phone. It's sometimes as close as they can get as COVID-19 takes another life. As grim as it is right now, Dr. Molette expects it will get worse. It could end in the fall, it could end in the, at the end of the year. But this is why we're begging everyone not just to only put that pressure on the emergency department, 
but also for everybody to help us to help them by staying home. You think we're in it for the long, long haul? Oh, this, yeah, is, this is months, not weeks. Definitely. Another worrisome thing she's seeing coming through the doors, not just the elderly and those with compromised immune systems. I work at two hospitals. So I work here in Brooklyn, and then I work at another hospital in the Bronx, and it's the same thing. In the South Bronx, it's the same thing. I've had patients that were in their 30s, and they they are now intubated, and they're really sick. I've had patients that are well- No in underlying conditions. No underlying conditions. So the thing is about between life and death, as far as this coronavirus, is that this virus sees no, there's no difference. Uh, has nothing to do with age, has nothing to do with lack of uh, access to health care, has nothing to do with socioeconomics, race or ethnicity. This virus is killing a lot of people. Brookdale has one advantage. Hospital officials say it can do rapid testing for coronavirus on site, its own lab. Right now, up to 300 tests a day. They hope to get to 500 a day. And right now we have about 52 specimens in here, We're about to... Uh, that we're preparing to test at the moment. The hospital following Centers for Disease Control guidelines on who gets coveted tests. Patients admitted for possible coronavirus, healthcare workers showing symptoms and symptomatic long-term patients. Each test a laborious and time-consuming process. It's very easy to make a mistake. Very easy, just from an extra milliliter of reagent. Uh, adding it to the machine can mess up the entire, all the batch, entire batch, all the 52 specimens. We would have to start all over from the beginning. ER doctors are used to stress. Dr. Molette says she has never experienced anything like this. I don't really sleep that well at night. I worried about my family. I worry about my safety. I worry about my colleagues. I worry about how the shift is going to be the next time I come. I worry about if a family member is going to come and be a patient as well or fall victim to the coronavirus. I, I worry about a lot of things. The disease, a marathon that healthcare workers alone cannot win or even finish. It's not up to just only to the emergency department to pull through and to make sure the curve is flat. And this is a responsibility for everybody in the country to help us pull through. So, so stay the F home. Exactly. I'm very Is that literally, I mean, how? No, how? stay the F home, exactly. Exactly, because it's not just on. It's not just us that has to help flatten the curve and take care of everybody. Help us help you. She says it will take everyone pulling together. The worst days she fears are still ahead. So, if anyone out there needed any more indication, any more sobering indication of where we are with this virus and where it is headed, that trip to that ER sort of solved it. Uh, the other thing that was really shocking to me, they talk about, you know, we talk about shortages of gloves and masks and goggles and all that stuff. They looked at the PPE, the protective gear that we were wearing. Uh, we had the, per, the, the proper Tyvek uh, uh, gear with the hood and, and the, the boots and the gloves and the, and the goggles and the masks. They looked at us like we were Christmas arriving, basically. They wanted the gear we had. They, they said they should have the gear we had. A lot of people I spoke to there at the hospital said that they stop off at Home Depot. They shop on eBay for that sort of gear so they can bring it in, use it for themselves, or share it with others. Jake? They're right. They should have that gear. And it's a national disgrace that they that they don't. Miguel, stay with us. I want to bring in Dr. Uh, David Battinelli. He's the chief medical officer at Northwell Health, which is New York's largest healthcare uh, provider. And uh, Dr. Battinelli, let me start with you. Medical professionals describing the hospital as, as a war zone, saying that they're scared for their own lives, the lives of their loved ones 
Are you experiencing the same thing at your hospital right now? Well, I think everybody sees this as uh, potentially overwhelming, but uh, we're behaving as professionals, supporting each other as colleagues. Uh, it happens to be National Doctors' Day, and uh, our doctors are helping our nurses, are helping our advanced care practitioners uh, really deal with this. But uh, be, that, be that as it may, behaving as professionals is one thing, but they're also human. They have fears. Uh, is, is it, it's not as bad where you are, though, as at the, the hospital that, that um, Miguel visited, or is it? Well, I, I'm not in that hospital, but I know that we have lots of patients. As you know, we've got uh, 2,000 patients uh, at our, our facilities. We have lots of patients in our ICUs. We've been preparing for this for some time. Um, we think we have adequate staff. We currently have adequate PPE. Uh, it is overwhelming for everybody. Miguel, you saw how serious this is firsthand. What do Americans need to learn from what you saw in that hospital other than what Dr. Millett said, stay the F home. It's the responsibility of every American to uh, help uh, flatten the curve. I think, you know, for me, nothing rattles an ER doctor typically. She was afraid not only, look, a lot of these people, almost everyone you spoke to has a second plan for the way that they live. They, they go to work and then they not only stay six feet away from their family, they live in different locations from their family. They can Skype or, or FaceTime with their kids and their husbands and their wives, but they can't uh, actually see each other. So it has completely disrupted their lives. I think the thing that really hit home for me, and I absorb and, and consume a lot of news and a lot of information about this, is that we're headed to a much worse place. We, we are in the first inning of a very long game. Jake. And Doc, and doc let, let me read you what one nurse uh, in New York told CNN. She said, quote, we have a new morgue now. I never in my life I'm walking around. Sometimes I feel like I'm in a movie. It's unreal. It's so many intubated patients, how fast they get intubated. Um, Dr. Batnelli, that's a concerning uh, picture the nurses is, is painting. I, I, I want you to, to explain a lot of people out there. I don't think they know what it means when a patient is hooked up to a ventilator, when a patient is intubated, my understanding is, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, is that quite often these patients are put on their stomachs, a tube is put down their throat, they're heavily sedated because it's so uncomfortable to have the tube down their throat and they are in such pain. Uh, Is that what it means for somebody to be on a ventilator? Yeah, when somebody's on a ventilator, they are artificially ventilated. They are hooked up to the machine. The machine goes a tube into their lungs. The positive pressure forces the air into their lungs because they can't take those breaths on their, on their own. They're usually paralyzed and also sedated because that helps us control their ventilation. There are times we have to make them prone, put them on their bellies to actually make sure that that ventilation is much more uh, efficient. Than, uh, and that's the reason that we put them on their bellies. Uh, it, it, it's obviously harrowing for the patients and uh, for the providers to see so many patients on the ventilators. As we've heard the other person talk about, it's not usual to have that many patients on ventilators throughout the entire facility. I just want people to understand how serious this is. Even the patients we're talking about who might, might ultimately survive, it's an incredibly harrowing ordeal. Uh, Dr. David Batnelli, uh, thank you for the work you do. I appreciate it. Uh, Miguel Marquez, great reporting. Uh, appreciate to both of you. Thanks so much. Uh, Coming up next, employees at major corporations delivering your packages, stocking food on the shelves, uh, basically helping to keep you alive, now threatening to walk out. Plus, a brand new CNN poll debuting here on The Lead. What Americans think about the response of the federal government to this crisis and much more. 
That's ahead. Stay with us. Just into CNN, the latest report shows 456 deaths in the U.S. today. 456. That is the largest number of reported deaths in a single day in the United States during this crisis. President Trump accepted the horrific projections from his health experts that more than 100,000 people in the United States alone could die from this pandemic, somewhere between 100 and 200,000. Now the president is admitting that life as we knew it will not be back by Easter, as he said he once wished. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, it may have been coronavirus hitting close to his childhood neighborhood that forced the president to accept the grim reality. Abandoning his desire to have the country reopened by Easter, President Trump now says Americans should avoid work, travel and outings for at least another month. To us, there was no question what the right choice was. The president retreated from his upbeat assessment after being faced with dire predictions from his health advisors that more than 100,000 people in the U.S. could die. Dr. Debbie Burks and I went in together in the Oval Office and leaned over the desk and said, here are the data. Take a look. But sources tell CNN it wasn't just the numbers that convinced Trump. Devastating images from Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, miles from where he grew up, also resonated with him. Elmhurst Hospital has seen such a surge in coronavirus infections that a refrigerated truck now acts as a makeshift mortuary. This is in my, essentially in my community. Without providing any data, the president told Fox News today that he now expects coronavirus cases to peak by Easter. That's going to be the highest point, we think, and then it's going to start coming down from there. Trump cited worst case scenario models that predicted 2.2 million people could die if no preventative measures were taken. Could have been 2.2 million people could have died. 2.2 million people. On Sunday, Trump questioned why the demand for masks has skyrocketed and implied something nefarious is happening at hospitals in New York. Something's going on, and you ought to look into it as reporters. But today, the state's governor said he didn't know what the president was talking about. Uh, I don't know what that means. I don't know what he's trying to say. Uh, If he wants to make an accusation, then let him make an accusation. Governor Cuomo offered this message instead. This is no time for politics. and, you know, lead by example. Today, Trump also said he's considering hazard pay for doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers, though he didn't make any commitments. When it comes to possible treatments, the president has often offered rosier assessments than his doctors. Today, he said officials should know within days if a drug that treats malaria works for coronavirus. I think we're gonna have a good idea over the next uh, three days. Now, Jake, when Dr. Fauci and the others met with the president over the weekend, he said they presented him with a pretty clear picture of what was going on. And he said Trump looked at the numbers and acknowledged to them that he didn't really have much of a choice but to extend those guidelines. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House. Thanks so much. Now to some breaking news, a new CNN poll just in. It shows uh, the nation split on the Trump administration's response to the coronavirus pandemic. About 48% of Americans say that the government has done a good job in preventing the spread. That number is holding steady from 49% in early March. But the number of people who believe the government has done a poor job, that's going up. It's now at 47% compared to three weeks ago when the number was at 43%. Now, when you break down the numbers by party, 77% of Republicans say that the federal government, the Trump administration, is doing a good job in prevention, compared to 44% of independents who feel that way and 27% of Democrats. When asked about preparedness, about 30% of Americans say they feel very prepared to deal 
if someone in their family were to contract the virus. 46% say they feel somewhat prepared. On the flip side, 14% say they feel they are not too prepared. 9% say they do not feel prepared at all. Those numbers change when you break it down by income level. 69% of those who make less than $50,000 a year say they feel prepared or at least somewhat prepared. That goes up to 83% for households that make more than $50,000 a year. In the money lead, workers threatening to walk off the job at an Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, New York. Workers say Amazon has only acknowledged one employee there with coronavirus when the true number may actually be seven confirmed cases. I want to bring in CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley. Julia, similar protests are happening uh, at the food delivery service Instacart uh, and Whole Foods, which is also owned by Amazon. Workers risking their health to deliver essentials that those of us who are staying at home need in order to survive. How are these big name employers responding? You're quite right, Jake. This is a whole different front line in this crisis, but no less important for these workers. Instacart first. They've come back and said, look, we'll provide hand sanitizers. We'll provide bonuses based on hours worked. They're also going to extend pay, sick pay, to May the 8th. For Amazon, what these workers wanted was that facility in Staten Island shut down. They wanted it sanitized. They wanted to be paid while it was shut. Amazon have responded. They're doing temperature checks now as of yesterday. They've said if people are afraid, then they can stay away unpaid as long as they like. They also provide sick pay and quarantine pay. Hazard pay is the buzzword, Jake. We're going to hear this more and more. And I think Congress eventually is going to have to act. And Julia, we saw a dramatic uh, drop in oil prices today. What's the reason behind that? Global growth fears. Look at America specifically. We're driving less. We're flying less. We simply are demanding less gas. That's putting downward pressure on prices. The other kicker here is supply from countries like Russia and Saudi Arabia, too, as part of a broader price war. This is good for U.S. consumers, remember, if and when they use gas. But overall, the United States is now a net oil exporter. So it's painful for states like Texas, like North Dakota, to name just a couple. Until we see growth pick up or supply reduce, these pressures are going to remain on oil prices. Lastly, Julia, on Friday, uh, the president signed that massive stimulus package uh, passed overwhelmingly by the House and Senate. How soon can Americans get those checks from the government? Finally, some good news that I can give you. According to the Treasury Secretary, within three weeks, if they have your direct deposit information, remember I told you on Friday, 60 percent of people that filed taxes last year gave that information. If they don't have that, they're setting up a website where you can go and give your information. So we have to watch out. If that's you, give your direct deposit information and then you'll get the money sooner. If you don't have a direct deposit information or a bank account, it's a check. And history suggests that can take up to two months. So it's all about that bank account, Jake. All right, Julia, keep keep us posted on when that website's up so we can get that information to our viewers. Thank you so much. The new coronavirus test that takes minutes instead of days. What might we learn about this virus from more testing? We're going to talk to an expert next. Stay with us. Welcome back. Two major changes are expected to make coronavirus testing easier and faster and less intrusive. This week, the Food and Drug Administration has approved a test that can give results in less than 15 minutes, in addition to another rapid test, which takes about 45 minutes. Just a few weeks ago, of course, these tests were taking days. Plus, U.S. health officials expect self-swab testing to start any day. That would allow, obviously, patients to submit their own samples and eliminate the need for healthcare workers to 
change their protective gear for every single test. Joining me now to discuss is former CDC disease detective, Dr. Seema Yasmin. Uh, Dr. Yasmin, thanks so much for joining us. The U.S., obviously, we've been lagging in testing, uh, but still, we have more cases here than anywhere else in the world, assuming you believe the numbers from every country in the world. So what do you expect to learn as testing becomes more widespread? So what we expect to see in situations like this, Jake, is what we call an epidemic of detection, where you start to see really rapid rises in the number of cases, as we are seeing now. And that's just a consequence of doing the kind of testing that, to be frank, we should have been doing a month or even earlier than that. And this is so important that we detect cases, because when we're giving that kind of public health guidance about how to stay safe, what kind of things you should be doing and not doing, you want to do that based on data. And you can't just pull numbers out the air. You need testing. That's why this news is really welcome that hopefully in the next few days and few weeks, we'll start to see the rapid development of these tests that doctors can do really quickly. And that will give us a much better grasp of just how bad this situation is. And I know it looks bad now, but there's still the feeling that we're still undercounting the actual number of cases in the U.S. So let's assume, and I'm just going to make up a place, that there is a drastic increase because of this increased testing, that by the end of April, we know uh, that in Whoville, uh, there are a, a dramatic increase in positive cases. What then happens? Would, would there be a, a stricter order than stay at home? What, how does it change uh, the way that we're handling this right now? So what it can change is it can give you the guidance as to how long you might need to have these orders in place. So right now, we're just going off the numbers we have, but having that true account of the real extent of community transmission can give us an idea of when can we start to get back to normal. We're seeing these shelter in place and lockdown issues extend further and further. We want to see those based on data. So it can help from that big, broader public health perspective. Of course, it can also really help physicians, Jake. You know at that point that you have somebody truly with COVID-19 in front of you, you can start thinking about potential experimental treatments. And from a clinician's perspective, you want to know exactly what infection you're fighting and what precautions you need to be taking. And Dr. Yasmin, the FDA has rush approved uh, limited use of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine to treat coronavirus patients. Obviously, we all hope that it works. I mean, we all want there to be a treatment um, but there, as of right now, there isn't a lot of data suggesting that they're necessarily effective in treating coronavirus. Um, the FDA, though, deciding that the potential benefits outweigh the, the risks. What do you think? I have talked to doctors and scientists a long time in the world of pharmacy who are really concerned about this ruling, Jake. They want to know who at FDA signed off on this because the evidence that these two medicines, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, the evidence that they work against coronavirus is scant, to be honest with you. However, they are proven to work against lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. And the concern is that the people who need those medicines are now struggling to get access to them, struggling to get their prescriptions refilled. In the meantime, we're seeing such mixed messaging from officials. Trump saying, for example, that he's really hopeful it will work. Then yesterday saying, let's see, maybe it will work, maybe it won't. And I'm learning from physician colleagues that they're now seeing people inside the ER who don't have COVID-19 but have overdosed on hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine because of this overarching reassurance. So many of us are brushing up on how do you treat intoxication with chloroquine because people are hearing this messaging and almost assuming that it's approved. 
approved. It isn't proven yet. We really need those solid clinical trials and those studies proving that it's safe in COVID-19 patients and proving that it really works. Yeah, indeed. Only do that if the doctor is involved. Um, and, and speaking of hydroxychloroquine, I want to ask you, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says uh, the shipments of the drug will be sent to some Florida hospitals, and he was able to get access to it uh, because he's friends with the U.S. ambassador to Israel, uh, who put him in contact with a pharmaceutical company uh, that makes it. So, look, I'm sure Floridians uh, are overjoyed that Governor DeSantis did this, and he's looking out for the people in his state. People in other states might wonder if it's fair, and who knows if hydro, hydroxychloroquine even will work, but whether or not it's fair that his connection, his personal relationship with a member of the Trump administration allows him to get this. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Jake, that's not how medicine and science is supposed to work. And I feel like the whole story of this pandemic in the States is a story of a system that's broken. And it's a story of unequal access to health care. We're still looking nationally at 27 million Americans who are uninsured, 44 million who are underinsured. Everyone should have access to the best medical care to proven treatments. It shouldn't be about how well networked you are or having friends in powerful places. That's not how medicine should work. Those kinds of things are actually bad for public health. Dr. Seema Yasmin, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. In our world lead, the thank global you. death toll is now more than 36,000 and total number of cases at more than 770,000. In the UK, they're pre preparing for a significant period of lockdown. In Italy, heart-wrenching stories of the tragic toll the virus is taking. An entire family, the Bertucci's, dying from coronavirus. The father, 86-year-old Alfredo is a well-known blacksmith. His wife, Angela, was 77. Their two sons, Danielle and Claudio, aged 54 and 46, respectively. Germany now taking patients from other European countries where hospitals are at capacity, saying they have twice as many vacant ICU beds as Italy. We have reporters around the world uh, joining me now to discuss uh, some of these developments. Let's start, of course, with C uh, CNN's Bianca Nobila. She's in London. Uh, Bianca, uh, how is Prime Minister Boris Johnson doing after testing positive uh, for coronavirus? Jake, his symptoms are mild and he's continuing to lead the country via video conference. We know that he had a big meeting this morning at 9.15 in Britain. He apparently was vigorous and giving the cabinet the leadership that was required. We heard that from the foreign secretary, who is Johnson's de facto deputy, if for some reason he was incapacitated. So Johnson will be remaining in self-isolation until Friday unless his symptoms deteriorate further. And it's not just the prime minister who is experiencing these symptoms and self-isolating. There are now three members of the cabinet in self-isolation and also his chief strategist Dominic Cummings. The key issue in the coming weeks in the UK will be as the country nears the peak having more testing as you were just discussing. At the moment the UK is only managing to test around 7,000 people a day. The government's target is 25,000 so Jake's still falling well shy of that. All right, Bianca Nabilo in uh, the UK. Thank you so much. CNN's Ben Wiedemann joins me now from Rome. Uh, 61 doctors in Italy are now dead. Ben, uh, how are the hospitals able to function with so many healthcare workers falling victim to the virus? Actually, let me update you, Jake. It's 63 doctors dead, 83, a rather 8,300 health workers have tested positive and uh, Italian hospitals are struggling as a result. Uh, now this evening we spoke to a doctor who just, he's a GP, but he volunteered 
uh, to join the effort. And he told us that every day uh, he works 16 hour shifts. And at the end of those shifts, all he wants to do is cry because of what he has seen in the hospitals, particularly in the north of the country. But there is finally some good news coming out, Jake. Today, the number of new cases was half the number of cases uh, reported yesterday. And the number of people who are reported to have recovered from coronavirus uh, reached a record high in sort of the 24-hour period. However, the draconian measures are going to continue the lockdown here. It has been extended from the 3rd of April to the 12th of April, Easter. Jake? All right. Ben Wiedemann, thank you so much. Stay safe, my friend. CNN's Frederick Pleitkin uh, joins me now from Berlin. Uh, Germany yes. is now treating patients from other countries? Yeah, they certainly are, Jake. And Germany really seems to be an outlier state here in Europe. Germany has some of the highest number of confirmed coronavirus cases in the world. It's number five in the world, with about 66,000 confirmed cases. At the same time, the very robust healthcare system in this country doesn't seem to be under massive pressure yet. The Germans have a huge number of intensive care beds. In fact, they say that they have twice as many vacant intensive care beds right now than the total number that Italy has at all. So therefore, they still have capacity. Now, of course, they want to save some of those capacities because they think things could get a lot worse here as well. But now they are taking people in from other countries. In fact, the German military flew in dozens of patients, not just from Italy, but actually also from France as well over the weekend. And the Germans are saying they're going to continue to do that. Really important, Jake, as far as trying to save lives. Really important, actually, also as far as messaging is concerned, because for a long time here in Europe, it looked to a lot of people as though the main countries that were helping, for instance, Italy, were Russia and China. And now the people here can really see that European countries, specifically the Germans, are really, really stepping up, Jake. All right, Fred Plaikin, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Stay safe. With all the stress and sadness uh, of this pandemic, something to hopefully brighten your isolation today. You've heard of DoorDash. How about DogDash? This is Sonny. He's a golden retriever in Colorado. He's been delivering groceries to a neighbor who requires oxygen to help her breathe and self-quarantining. Sonny is trained to fetch a grocery list and bring it back to his owner so she can do the shopping and then run the bags next door. Delivery fees, of course, have been waived. Finally, uh, from us on this National Doctors Day, I want to take a moment to single out one particular doctor, a Philadelphia pediatrician, Dr. Theodore Tapper, who turns 80 years old today, shown here with me at the link the night the Eagles won the NFC. Happy birthday, Dad. I love you. Thanks for being my dad. The White House Task Force briefing is set to begin soon. We're going to bring that to you live once it starts. Stay with us. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash country. Max subscription required.